This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can. Always give love the upper hand. All right, Brendan. So uh, here we are. Monday night, January 11th, um, sitting down to record our 13th episode, um, fitting that this would be the lucky number 13th. Um, I guess, but I guess, you know, on the bright side, we're at least getting to, uh, to do this one in person. The, um, you know, normally I would ask you what we're talking about this week, but I think, uh, like in some past episodes, when it's, when it's that obvious, there's, there's, there's kind of no point in that. Um, so I'll just say, you know, we're going to, we're going to be covering the, uh, events of last week. Um, I think we'll try and start with the, what we saw and, and potentially kind of how on that day things unfolded. Um, and then I guess we'll go back and forth and try and try and give a little bit of a summary of our takeaways um, I'm glad we, we, we let this sort of simmer a little bit from, from, uh, from when things, you know, immediately unfolded, we'd, we'd sort of obviously, as everyone, as I'm sure everyone did, um, have some, have some takes immediately, but, but we're able to digest a little bit more over the weekend. And I guess, yeah, I guess we'll just start, um, with, you know, what happened last week. Yeah, I will say credit to you. You are, I wanted to record that night. <laughs> I called you trying to record that night. And I appreciate the people that reached out to both of us and you and me and, and said that, like, hey, I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. We really, we honestly really appreciate that. Uh, but I was all fired up. I was angry and I wanted to record that night. And again, you, ever the more moderate and restrained one, said maybe we should let it simmer for a little while. So I think that probably was the best idea. I don't think there's a ton that you and I are going to say in this episode that. Uh, that we haven't heard or seen out there, you know, it feels like every take across the spectrum has been given, but you know, hopefully our angle here continues to be to, to try to have a little more nuanced discussion and, and try to find some common ground here, which c- continues to, to seem to be a struggle uh, on a national level. Uh, yeah, it was, we recorded last Monday night and Wednesday, you texted me when everything went down, and you were pretty much like, "Our our episode is totally irrelevant." At that point, you know, like, and it was like a, it was kind of a decent, it was a decent episode, and we recorded last Monday in anticipation. And this is what I said on our Instagram feed was that like we knew it was going to be a wild week, and we were kind of setting that up of look, this is going to be a really monumental week, and it's going to be kind of crazy. And in all honesty, it, it blew everything that I thought was going to happen or could possibly happen yeah, out of beyond the water. our wildest. It, it really was. It certainly was for me. And one of my friends texted me, I think, for, on Friday, and he said, I, "I'm listening to episode 12, and yeah, it's a good episode, but it just it, it doesn't have any relevance anymore. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, it's like, and that's been it's certainly been a challenge for us, like trying to get this podcast going in the age of Trump, but also it's just the it's probably something the news media has been reckoning with for four years of how do you try to cover something when it immediately becomes irrelevant by the next crazy thing that's happened. And uh, it's part of it, I think, is just media these days and we're just inundated with news 24-7 and nothing seems to have staying power. Um, And maybe this won't as well. You know, that's one of those crazy things. Like, I don't know, uh, 
was talking to my mom about this and she was like, this is, she brought up like September 11th and my father was like, you're crazy. And I, I was sitting back and I was like, I don't know that she is, you know, uh, and you think of a day like September 11th where it, it dominated the United States media and, and world media for you know, weeks and months uh, as well it should have. And, and you just think that how much has changed in the last 20 years where this is immediately going to be swept into, and we'll get into this later, of 25th Amendment and impeachment and Biden's inauguration. And uh, this this day and the historic nature of this day, I don't know it's going to get the uh, the attention and the, the weightiness and time for people to sit with it and digest it like it really deserves. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I think, um, you know, sort of the to, to touch on the, the aspect of the unexpectedness i think one of the things that really struck me is how divorced sort of we are in the media outlets that we choose to read and and that sort of cover for us sort of the main stories of the day um you know in in hindsight you hear a lot of them saying like for weeks trump supporters across the country have been circling January 6th is the day we're coming. Trump himself has been, like, saying, everybody come to Washington, January 6th. Like, this is the day. And so I think it's one of those things where, like, part of you just wants to believe that people who would do what we saw people do on that day still live so far on the fringe of society that, like, these types of actions are still feel unexpected but there were a lot of elements or you know in in that 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 kind of hindsight review of like what did this sort of felt in that inevitable or it was like there was a call to action around it it wasn't like a spontaneous people just appeared there out of nowhere they had been building up to this for for i mean you know, you can say since november 4th or yeah. 5th or whenever it was yeah and certainly <clears throat> In previous episodes, we had alluded to the potential for violence. Mm. That this wasn't, in that sense, the fact that there was unrest and violence wasn't necessarily shocking in and of itself. I will say that the images of you know Americans scaling the Capitol walls and inside the halls of the Senate and the House that truly was shocking to me. But I guess before we get like ahead of ourselves as we often do, let's rewind to the beginning of that day. So. Tuesday, January 5th, we have the Georgia Senate runoffs, and those were incredibly significant because they were to determine the balance of power in the Senate. Uh, Republicans already had 50 elected officials in there. Uh, Democrats were sitting with 48. So two wins by the Democrats gives them a 50-50 split. The president of the Senate is the vice president, so obviously... Um, Tie goes to the Democrats. Exactly. So <laughs> Harris would be the, the, the deciding vote going forward. Um, so this was significant, obviously, because you know Democrats control the presidency, they control the House, and it was whether or not the Republicans were going, going to be able to have this check of the Senate on them. Uh, the results were incredibly close, uh, which I think everyone pretty much anticipated. Uh, but and this hasn't been like totally certified, but by all by all accounts, uh, Democrats won both races, and they were significant races. So the Reverend Raphael Warnock and uh, John Ossoff won were the two Democratic candidates who won. And, you know, Warnock is the first Demo black Democrat elected uh, in the South ever. Uh, it's it's hugely significant for him, you know, a little bit about his background. I'm sure a lot of people know this already, but grew up in Georgia, uh, 
became a, a preacher, a reverend, and he preaches at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was the church that Martin Luther King uh, also preached at. So he has like really deep roots and ties to Georgia. Um, and John Ossoff is, um, is young, he's 33 years old. Uh, with his election, he is the first Jewish senator elected from, from Georgia. Uh, there were certainly, while the history of you know, the treatment of, of blacks in the South is, is very well known. Jews in the South were at times certainly discriminated against almost as badly. Uh, so we had a, in one night the the first black senator, Democratic black senator in the South ever be elected and a Jewish, the first Jewish senator in Georgia ever to be elected. Uh, and while, you know, personally I wasn't as, you know, a conservative former Republican, I wasn't thrilled. I was really hoping the Republicans would keep the Senate. This was a, a monumental thing to to be able to break those glass ceilings. Um, and this all happened just to, like while we're talking about it is this happened at like three o'clock in the morning, uh, 2.30, I think um, Reverend Warnock gave his victory speech and Ossoff was later certified to have won probably around six or seven that morning. So this is how Wednesday, the 6th of January, 2021 kicked off for the United States. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then, and so Wednesday the 6th, right? And and these, uh, basically the the congressmen uh, and women, as well as the senator, well, sorry, uh, you know, the House and the Senate have to come together and meet to certify the results of the individual states' elections, basically accept the electors from each state, um, which have already been certified. Which have already been certified by the individual states exactly. themselves. Yep. Um, something that you had alluded to before is kind of a, a vestige of that uh, Hayes um, election in 1876. Um, so <clears throat> while, you know, again, we didn't expect this to be kind of perfunctory, we knew that there was was going to be both, um, both members members of the House and the Senate were going to object to certain states' electors, uh, <laughs> namely Ted Cruz and uh, Hawley on the Republican side, but there were 10 other Republicans who initially um, had, had sort of signed up to do the same thing, um, as well as, you know, over 100 um, Republicans in the House. Um, it wasn't looking like it was going to be enough, but it was going to be enough to kind of delay things and make things harder. And, and in the midst of all that, um, Donald Trump was, was hosting one of his, I, th I think this was another like stop the steal rally um, across the way uh, from the Capitol, essentially imploring his supporters to um, give Mike Pence the kind of the courage to like overturn these or I'm not, I'm not even entirely sure what they were supposed to do, um, and I, I'm hoping that 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 you can f that you can fill me in. But essentially, um, you know, whipping them up in in, in like the form of like a, a pregame pep rally, um, and and now we're gonna now we're gonna march on the Capitol. And um, I don't know. Do you have do you have some uh, some some uh, words uh, I think that that Trump used perhaps um, to to add some color to this. Right. I tried so, to block it out. Right. A bit. So <laughs> no, as you as you said, there's tens of thousands of people that were pouring into the Capitol for this pre-planned stop the steal, you know, support Trump uh, type rally, 
and you know Trump speaks at the rally. He was scheduled to go on at, at about eleven, and he speaks for about an hour per usual. I'm sure everyone has seen the the images of it, and he concludes his speech speech by saying this. So we are going to we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue, and we're going to the Capitol, and we're going to try and give. The Democrats are hopeless. They are never voting for anything, not even one vote. But we're going to try to give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're, try, we're going to try to give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. And that's how he concludes his speech. And I just want to highlight one other line from earlier in the speech. He said, uh, when he's talking about the election results, and he said, but I said something is wrong here. Something is really wrong. Can't have happened. We fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Yeah, it's um, right. So I, I think I guess for me there are two takeaways. One, something that I I, I don't think many people could argue with uh, would would be that that the president um, is is more or less directly responsible both with his words on that day and into the run up. Um, of the you know the specific events of a massive group of people kind of running and storming the capitol um, so that's that's kind of one thing I mean I think the language um, his like oratory style has always been to kind of pick a few phrases and a few uh, terms like they're stealing our country they're stealing this from us and when he says us you know he he means a very specific group of people not the United States um, as a whole, but in in using that language, sort of very effectively um, preaching his message to a crowd that you know was always receptive to 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 these kinds of things. I think they had really just been waiting for somebody um, to sort of say them on the, on the national stage the way that that Trump is. Yeah, absolutely. And so he he gets on a lady, speaks for about an hour, and by two o'clock these protesters are at the doors of the capitol and i remember i had been up late because i wanted to watch uh warnock's speech and up early we had texts the next morning being like wow this is this is historic that warnock and ossif had had won these these runoffs and so i was i knew this stuff was going on kind of in the background but i wasn't really tuned into it and then you start getting notifications on your phone like you know protesters have have pre approached the capitol and then as that two o'clock hour goes on you're getting more and more, at least I was getting more and more notifications of, you know, there's, there's confrontations, there's violent confrontations outside the U.S. Capitol. And then all of a sudden it's protesters have broken into the Capitol. They have like breached the doors, the, the Senate chamber and the House chamber. And I'm getting goosebumps now, five days later, talking about it. It's, uh, it was incredible. And at that point, I just put down everything. I, I went and turned on the TV and just sat in, in kind of like shocked silence. And this is what you were alluding to earlier. And I'd be curious... Because when we talked that night, you said, like, are you really surprised? And I said, yes. And you said, I'm, I'm not. So I'm curious to hear your take on that in a minute. But uh, and this is as I'm sitting there, I'm, I, the shock to me was it really felt like stuff that CNN has covered in all of these other countries, in Eastern European countries, in Middle Eastern countries, in African countries, in South American countries for years. And I've seen this unfold all across the world. And to see this happen in Washington DC to me was shocking and my next emotion honestly was it was anger I, I was really furious at these people to to behave like this and to act in, in this manner and uh, 
you know, I, I never want to uh, encourage law enforcement to, to kind of take matters into their own hands, but I was I was furious that it seemed like these people were were not getting. Uh, they were not facing the kind of resistance they should have been facing. And and we'll saw, I certainly want to talk about this, how if, if these people didn't look like they did, that the, the resistance they would have faced would have been far different. We, we know that. Uh, but I, I was at that point, like, these people deserve... <laughs> I'm really trying to watch my words here, but I was really furious that these people were, were entitled enough to think that they deserve to be in this capital and to um, physically threaten and, and threaten with violence and with with arms and with tear gas and or Molotov cocktails and, and, and pipe you know, pipes, bombs. pipe bombs and, and fire extinguishers being used as weapons and, and tear gas all being used on our, our elected officials uh, or trying to get to our elected officials and the people that are trying to defend them, the law enforcement that theoretically we as conservatives and Republicans said that we're all about and Blue Lives Matter and we're now assaulting police officers. Like I was absolutely furious and we'll talk about this later about how I, these people need to be brought to justice. But in that moment, the fact that there wasn't um, a, a stiffer response by the police, and certainly we've seen videos of, you know, they were really overwhelmed, but it, it was, I was, I was infuriated at that point. Yeah. Um, there, there, uh, certainly a lot to unpack there. I think one of the, one of the things when you were talking about sort of what we typically get reported to from, other countries where um, elections don't seem fair and or or you know whatever there's there's kind of a, a, either a coup going on or some sort of armed insurrection. I think one of my the if I can sort of inject any levity into here, one of my favorite tweets that I read was like, if America saw what America was doing, America would invade America to liberate America from America, um, which. Uh, I mean, was was really, uh, you know, very applicable here, the bedrock of, of any true free society and, and, and a democracy, of course, is the peaceful transition of power um, in, an, like, in an election where really there was no question. Um, and um, I think, you know, one of the things we can certainly touch on is, is how or if uh, this is at all, a, you know, some of these claims of election fraud are at all a parallel um, to sort of democratic claims in, in prior elections about voter suppression. I would argue that they're not, um, but they have sort of similar overtones to them in, in, in some situations. I think, <clears throat> um, I think I want to get into a little bit about sort of the, the response um, in that day, because I, I, I've sort of been following a, a number of different things, and I think um, there is certainly a lot to say about the fact that had this been a Black Lives Matter protest, or, you know, we know what happened to the Black Lives Matter protests that were in Washington, and I think it, it certainly fits, um, I don't want to say a convenient narrative, because the, it is it is a true story that, you know, we know how disproportionate responses to actual peaceful protests have unfolded in this country. We've seen it over the last nine or 10 months. But one of the things that I heard um, that was interesting to me is that it was actually, you know, 
partly by design. Like they knew that there were going to be a lot of people there. They didn't want a repeat of what happened with the Black Lives Matter protesters in early June um, and July. And so part of it, and this came like, you know, according to, you know, a report or an interview that I heard on the on the daily from the New York Times, it was partly a directive from the mayor's office in D.C. saying, like, you know, we want to try and de-escalate. We don't want there to be violence. We don't want to see tons of images of tear gas and people running around and flashbang grenades and things like that. And and so you have like a Capitol Police force, which is a much smaller um, police force than you know, the National Guard and some of these other uh, forces that we had seen in the past that weren't there today. And, you know, one of the things about this that I want, you know, if there if there's something that I think uh, maybe hasn't been said, and I'm not entirely sure that it needs to be said, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it, is that there are <clears throat> ways in which um, what we saw on... January 7th fit into tight narratives. And I I think it is important to try and divorce some of the images and some of like the short clip videos from trying to make broader um, assessments of uh, sort of the state of the world. I think you I think you certainly can do that and kind of like, you know, you add up individual events and that is how things are, certainly. Um but I, I saw a lot about, uh, you know, there was like a video of some woman being helped down the steps and um, that being juxtaposed with some guy getting his head kicked in. And, you know, one was a Black Lives Matter protest and, and one was what we saw. Um, and, and, you know, both of those things certainly happened. But to kind of wrap them in their, in their like totality, like there was a police officer who died um, from uh, an injury that he sustained during during this insurrection, there were also um, there was also a woman who was shot um, like trying to climb through a window. Not saying that not 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 really trying to defend her, but saying that you know taking small clips of individual events and trying to to paint the entire picture of what happened, I think is a little dangerous. And I'll give one last example is there were, there were police officers taking selfies, um, with, with people, um, in the crowd. And of course, another thing where you're like, this is, this is insane and just shows that all police officers are, uh, you know, complicit in sort of our society and, and how we treat black people and and how you know they are more aligned with kind of white supremacists and and sort of the the trump idea of who we need law and order for but you know you also had police officers taking selfies at some of these other protests and and things like that and it's 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 very difficult um especially when we see something and we want to see more of the reporting that reaffirms our beliefs of what happened, um, not to not to latch onto those and to to share those because they're quick likes, and we know that the people that we're sharing them to will also, you know, hop onto that and and say this is exactly what this is. And I, I think even in in a situation where it's almost very black and white as to what um, what happened and who's right and who's wrong, that there are actually. I guess more, more. There is potentially more nuance there um, than than meets the eye. I'm not sure. Of course, I mean, there's always more nuance than 
anyone can ever give or wants really wants to give on that particular media platforms. Uh, but I, I do think we should like explicitly acknowledge that 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 picture of the you know the National Guard in riot gear guarding the Capitol during Black Lives Matter protests this summer versus the complete absence of the National Guard in in the Capitol during this protest is is striking. The NAACP tweeted, you know, they have killed us for less. And that's just a fact. And so I, I do think this is really interesting, though, that you brought this up, that the the lack of resistance that the protesters faced was by design. And I heard, I was, maybe it was on Fox or CNN, and they were, they were interviewing a congressman, a Republican congressman, I think he was from Pennsylvania, and he was saying that, yeah, like, this is a good thing. If we had more military there, more police officers there with guns, like, the people that show up to these protests are far more heavily armed than the people that typically show up to a Black Lives Matter protest or really any protest from that matter. So, it, and I, I, to not make this exclusively a, a race thing, I would say that there was less military, less police presence at this protest than there was for really any number of protests that have happened in D.C. over the past 5, 10, 15 years. Like, whether it's Black Lives Matter or not, there was just a significantly you know, smaller police force presence here. And again, that, that might have been, it seems to have been by design. And on the one hand, of course, that's a good thing. Fewer people died, right? Like we don't need, uh, we didn't need a, a, a face-off between an overwhelmed police or military force and heavily armed protesters out there. Like that, the fact that only, again, only five people died, yeah, like we're lucky. It certainly could have been a lot worse with how combustible that mix could have been. Uh, on the other hand, it's just like the double standard here infuriates me, but also that our excuse is that like we don't want to have more people die, which again, I think is a good goal. But in what we're giving up in favor of that is we're allowing armed insurrectionists to have unfettered access to the Capitol and potentially our elected officials. Like Again, we are lucky it wasn't worse than that, that you know, people are screaming like, where's Nancy? I'm no fan of Pelosi, but like, People in there, like, their lives are potentially at stake. And they didn't know. When when you're sitting in, in the House of Representatives and people are trying to bang down the glass door and force themselves in there, you don't know what's going to happen on the other side, right? You're getting whisked away and asked to put your gas mask on and taken to a secure location. Like, at that point, your life, could, your life was in danger. And there have been numerous examples of people calling their wives, their husbands, their children, saying, you know, I'm, I'm safe right now, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. Just want you to let you, like you know that how much I love you and the kids and like that's really scary things and so while I respect the the goal of not escalating the conflict on the side of law enforcement one we know that's not what would have happened if if these protesters were black and brown people and two at some point like we got to defend federal property and we cannot just allow people that are angry rightly or wrongly from storming the capitol and having access to the halls of of our government yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I hope my my point wasn't misconstrued and that I was sort of applauding the the approach that the Capitol Police had taken. I was I was mainly mainly trying to say that I think a lot of people would point to this and say, "Here is American racism, right for you to see." Right, six months ago, you had National Guardsmen up and down those steps. Um, all full decked out in bulletproof vests and, you know, the, the military helmets and they all had AK-47, you know, whatever the standard yeah, yeah. issue M-15 is. Um, and, and there was none of that and these people were allowed to go in. Um, I, I think that there is, 
that while, while I'm saying is th that we know that there is kind of, there are racist, not even undertones or overtones, it, almost racism purely and simply on display, it is more complicated than that. Like there are, you know, none of these individual events happen in a vacuum. And so when it, while it's easy to sort of share these images side by side, that it, it sometimes requires us to, to think about them more critically or really to like look beyond what is the tweet, what is the headline, and say, you know, what exactly happened and why did it happen? Um, you know, I've heard from a number of congressmen on both sides that there's going to be a full-blown investigation on exactly like how this happened, where were the failings. I think both like the heads of the Capitol Police and um, you know, the security details for the House of Representatives and the Senate have both like resigned. So th there, there are going to be um, some some changes here. I mean, you know, you brought up protecting federal property. I would say, you know, one of the things uh, that we had an argument on on this podcast before was like, you know, we had guys showing up protecting Kia dealerships in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Like, where were they? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the silence is um and and this is they were on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They were ready to 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 storm the Capitol. And and that's I mean Yeah, it is one of those things where it's very hard to process um how 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 you how you feel about it. I mean, just just the idea, like you said, that they were really meeting no resistance, like a few, like a handful of police officers is scary. Is, it's scary. And it's also like just wild. Like my perception of like, if you ever like walked down Pennsylvania Avenue and like looked at the White House the wrong way, like some sniper from Secret Service is just going to take you out. That was like always my like understanding of how these things worked, especially like post 9-11. Like you couldn't take like pictures of a lot of these places because they didn't know if you were going to like be planning something and the thing that's insane is you know like as we were sort of saying to start this thing off is is that a lot of people had said like I'm coming and if I'm gonna bring a gun or if I'm gonna bring a weapon like how do I carpool from another state that uh that I don't have to worry about getting getting caught up in like TSA like it was well known that that people were coming to this who like what kind of people how they were gonna be armed um, and, and, you know, potentially like f not forgetting the black lives matter thing here, but like, if we were talking about, imagine if this was a terrorist yeah. enterprise and they were all just like openly on Twitter and on parlor being like, well, how do I get there? Well, like, where do I bring the guns? And like, how do I do all this? And then, and as you were saying, like if it had, uh, five, five lives is not a trivial number of people to have died, but it certainly could have been significantly worse um especially because so many of our elected leaders were all in this like one place yeah i mean let's say it's scary like whether it's a terrorist attack or if you're a foreign country like i too uh am, am frightened by how easily the halls of our government were yeah. breached yeah I, I think if if you are if you are someone that wishes harm to united states you see that uh it's not only eye-opening but maybe gives you hope and that that's a scary thing yeah, you're probably thinking like, what am I doing thinking about like all these like transcontinental nuclear warheads? Like I could just like walk in there and do this. I know, it's bad. And hopefully, I mean, like you said, they're 
consequences are coming and investigations are coming and hopefully nothing like this ever ever happens again but it, it's certainly eye-opening it's, it's almost something like what you brought up the other day how Trump has exposed like a lot of like the dirty like underlying the underbelly of the United States in a lot of ways like this is an, another thing where I'm shocked that this was <laughs> was allowed to happen um, so yeah hopefully that'll change I think if we if we continue ahead with the day eventually the protesters are largely ushered out of of the halls of government more you know pence gets on the phone we start to get uh, more national guardsmen um into dc we start to slowly restore order the crowd starts to dissipate uh and eventually we get back to work and pence gives a a, a strong stirring opening speech where he, he pretty much says that you know he's he too looked and sounded furious by everything that happened says that it's time you know we get back to work doing their jobs and certifying these election results we get um how, it, how, how many states in? Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, the third state in. And I guess remarkably, not remarkably, uh, both the House and Senate decide to continue forward with their objections to Arizona's uh, electoral votes. And we get the two-hour the two debate in, in both chambers. Uh, so I think that, was, that took us to maybe 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Uh, we finally continue. They come back. They get enough votes to certify Arizona's uh, electoral votes. We continue forward with all the states up until Pennsylvania. Again, remarkably, 100-plus House Republicans and I think seven House, uh, I mean, Senate Republicans led by Senator Hawley from Missouri vote to object to these electoral votes as well. Another two-hour debate. I think this brings us to you know one or two o'clock in the morning. We finally get back and at 3.32 a.m., you know, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris finally get the 270 votes uh, to to be certified as the incoming President and Vice President of the United States. Um, the process continues for another half hour or so, and to get um, Biden and Harris to their official count of 306 votes. And so that happens at about four in the morning. So it's just to sit back, like that 24 hours in American politics and American history, it starts with the historic elections of Warnock and Ossoff, in, in the middle of the day, we have a riot, an armed insurrection storming the Capitol building. And at the end of the day, we have the historic you know, certifying of the Biden-Harris presidential administration. So just a absolutely wild, exhausting 24 hours. Yeah, and maybe it's best to leave it at that. And when we come back we'll talk a little bit about um about why or how and i'll answer your question um about whether or not or you know whether or not i think this was uh inevitable we as americans us as a citizen gotta protect ourselves look at us it's been we better check ourselves living up in these streets the worse or the better health surviving by any means we as americans us as a citizen we as samaritans what do we get us in we better check ourselves look at us that it's been take a look where you live this is america and we are I'm americans so i want to get in in this segment i want to get into the the nuance that you had alluded to in our in our previous segment where like how and why did this happen 
Because obviously, and you already did this, we point to Trump's speech and clearly he's inciting the, the mob in front of him to walk down to the Capitol and, you know, and cause, and cause a, a scene to, to fight for, to fight like hell for their country, whatever people interpret that as, you know, <laughs> clearly we saw what many people did interpret it as. Yeah. Um, and so we can certainly point to Trump's speech that morning, and that's definitely true, and the speeches of others, Donald Trump Jr., Mo um, Brooks, Hawley, Cruz, like we can go down the line. Uh, but it it's a larger issue here, and I have a lot of thoughts on it, but I'd be curious, like, where... If we're if we're laying responsibility for this day, the the, the tragedy of this day, both in, in terms of lives lost, but also kind of a tragedy for our country as a whole to have our seat of government stormed by armed insurrectionists, you know, where else do you put it? How do you start to write this narrative like that as you said, it is certainly not as neat as many people on either side would like to make it. Yeah. I mean I guess no matter what you know, on on that particular day, I think you can easily point to Donald Trump and say, like, X, Y, Z events were precipitated by this. Um, but, but when you think about sort of the, how did we get here, I think, uh, well, I mean, I, I think you can, actually, I don't, I don't, I don't really know where you have to start at. I have to believe that a big part of this is sort of the distrust for uh, media that I, like, those terms, fake news and alternative facts that sort of uh, Trump championed during his um, campaign in 2016 start to sow the seeds for you don't have to believe what everybody is telling you is true. Like, all you have to do is believe me. And, and I, I mean, and, and, you know, I'll potentially throw this back to you. To me, this was the, the grand bargain that the Republican Party, like the deal with the devil that they made. Like, hey, we can energize a, a, a part of the, a part of the U.S., like sort of this marginalized group of, um, sort of middle America white voters that typically either was voting Democrat, but only because their family was, didn't feel like they were being spoken to in any way because the things that resonated with them were honestly overtly racist or um, just things that we had worked very hard to get out of our... Um, for lack of a better word, like our lexicon, like we, we were trying to grow out of these things. Um, and so, you know, Republicans in the nineties and, and 2000, early two thousands, you know, we're making efforts alongside progressive Democrats, like political correctness, isn't just a kind of a liberal progressive thing. It be, it became that way, I think in, in 2010, but I think largely it was out of a recognition of kind of our racist history and like we needed to do some things to change. Um, and maybe starting with like birtherism, um, you know, what Trump was doing to Obama and maybe it was a reaction to the fact that we had a black president, like 
figuring out a, a way to start to challenge just like accepted realities and start to say that like everything that you see is just being spoon fed to you and it's lies and it's because of this like greater conspiracy against you um, that, you know, that, that once that happens, once reality doesn't matter anymore, then we can, you know, say and do anything that we want. And so the reason that I think about the events of January 6th as almost inevitable is that, you know, if you have a group of people that truly believe that there is such widespread fraud in the election system that, that sort of the government is being upended by non-democratic forces, they were almost doing what you would want them to do. Yeah. The problem is, is that they live in a fantasy land of, you know what I mean? Like they're not, they're not, they're not inhabiting the same reality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And this is, I already expressed my anger at these people. Uh, like I said, I'm absolutely furious. And even talking about it now, like I'm still getting that same anger at them. I will also say in reflecting upon it these last few days, I genuinely feel bad for a lot of these people. Uh, that woman that you mentioned that was shot and killed, um, Ashley Babbitt, at the Capitol, she was wrong. She's a criminal. She she was storming the Capitol, banging on, on the Senate doors try to, trying to get in. Uh, she was also a 14-year military veteran. She had served two tours um, in Iraq and was, by all accounts, for many years, a really upstanding ideal American was a family woman with a really good family, married, her, her parents are still alive, um, and her death in is, is really a tragedy. And uh, they interviewed her mother-in-law, and they said she kind of got sucked into this QAnon conspiracy theory and these right-wing um, blogs and media, and, and then Trump came along and, and kind of justified many of her beliefs, and she just got lost down that rabbit hole. And that's, that's a tragedy to me. This was a woman that, like you said, was every bit of the American that we wanted to was out defending our freedoms as a soldier and is now uh, is shot and killed with storming the U.S. Capitol. How does that happen? How, how do tens of thousands of people show up to the Capitol believing something that's not true? Millions of people believe that it's not true, even now. Um, and it's, it's because we, as a country, are no longer working from the same set of facts. And I've been kind of reflecting a lot in these last few days, which I guess I'm glad, again, that you forced me to you know, press pause on recording this. And like, the goal of this podcast was that we would sit down and, and try to find common ground. It's been pretty easy to do that even when we disagree on things because you and I are working from the same set of facts. And so it's been, it's forced me a little bit to step back and kind of challenge my own bubble that I'm in. And while I am conservative for Massachusetts and for Boston, I'm certainly, when I was out in North Dakota, I was not conservative, right? And, and while I try to you know, solicit different viewpoints online and on social media. And I, I have many friends that are far left and far right on, on platforms like Facebook or Instagram or wherever. Uh, the media I consume is, is largely East Coast, what I would call like, or what people would call quote unquote like liberal elite media. And while I, I read the Washington Post and Politico and, uh, you know, Wall Street Journal and New York Times and Boston Globe, like, I think for many people in this country, in the middle of this country, they would look at all of those and lump them all in as, as the same type of media. And now that the seeds have been sown for years not to trust them, if you are reading all of these other publications, which are telling you, like you said, that the things that these liberal elites, the, the mainstream media are telling you are not true, 
and then you're reading these other sources, these alternative facts, and then you go online to your whatever social media you're on, and you're in these echo chambers of people repeating these same facts, that's the reality you're now inhabiting. And for all of these people, they were legitimately aggrieved. And I, what's, what's bothered me a lot, what I've seen on from my right-wing friends on social media, has been like the whataboutism. You know, like, well, what about Black Lives Matter? Or what about what they did in Minneapolis? What they, what they did in Ferguson, right? And it's like, I, I, I can't stand that because I think it just tries to deflect and excuse the inexcusable behavior that went on on the 6th. Uh, but at the same time, if we look at some of the, the why we had the Black Lives Matter protests, I think a lot of it was because people were standing up because they felt like enough. We can't do anything else. We've, we've said, we've used our voices for years. We've tried to vote for years and nothing is changing. We are still being killed in the streets. And while I don't think they are equivalent, I think the belief amongst these people showing up uh, to the Capitol on the 6th is we did everything we could. We, we, we used our voices online. People didn't listen to us. We voted. You stole the election from us. What else do you want us to do? You are stealing our country from us. And there is righteous anger from these people. And like you said, if you truly believed that this country was being stolen from you and taken away from you, it like there was, I totally disagree with, Representative Mo Brooks from Alabama, but he said, our ancestors stood up and, and fought and died for this country. Are we prepared to do the same? Like, that's the rhetoric people are hearing. And there are lots of people that are saying, yes, I am ready to fight and die for it. And it's coming out of, generally speaking, a good place. I want to save this country and what it stands for and save freedom and democracy. And Like, that's, that's why these people are upset. But they're working, like you say, in, in this kind of not even kind of, in this fantasy, this this alternate reality that's not true. And that that's, I, I generally feel yeah. bad for these people. And I don't, go ahead. Yeah, no, sorry, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to cut you off there. But I, I, I totally agree, which is why I don't place the blame really with the, the people that were there. Um, I mean, I, I think they have, as individuals, li likely have um, some... Well, no, they do have some work to do, but I think we have to realize as a society that we have a huge portion of our population is overly susceptible to certain types of messaging, um, whether that, you know, has to do with, uh, you know, racism in, in, in one, uh, in one vein or, or something else, but we have, for lack of education, for lack of a number of different reasons, like a, a real lack of like critical thinking skills. But when I think about who is to blame, I think about the Cruises and the Hollies here. I don't actually even necessarily think directly on Donald Trump because Donald Trump is exactly who he has been since day one, right? He hasn't really, like he's kind of a grifter, kind of a con man. He knows how to exploit certain situations to his benefit. But the way sort of Republicans talked about his presidency, like the prospect of his presidency in 2016 is like, yeah, but we got these checks. Yeah, but we have other people who are reasonable. But the problem was over the last four years is they didn't do anything to stop him. When he did things that were out of line, they didn't do anything to say, excuse me, you're out of line. And the ones who did were all gotten rid of, right? Like even like the Jeff Sessions of the world couldn't cut it in a Trump uh, cabinet. And this is why when I think about the inevitability of 
today, you know, you just have so many different opportunities um, to stand up for, for some of the things that were right. And you just have people who you sort of trusted to do that. Even if like I did not agree with a lot of the Republicans in Congress and the Senate, Mitch McConnell being, you know, number one of those guys, like it took him until January 6th to be like, you know what, maybe this is like a little bit too far. Um, I think it's very clear that we didn't win this election. We got to move on, right? Like, it, but that's too late. That's way too late, right? Like you let that, you one, you legitimized all of these other, uh, all of these claims of, of fraud, but it wasn't just on that day, right? You legitimized them throughout. And I, and I, and I do understand that there is um, that there is some bias in a lot of these media elements. Like it isn't always true, and I was kind of trying to make this point with what we were seeing there. Like, of world events don't fit into convenient narratives, but as journalists, it's much easier to put them into like this is the story that we're going with, and when you you know kind of weave those. And, and, you know, when different people feel aggrieved for different reasons, they can just say, well, I'm just going to also write off the entire, we'll just write off the whole news industry then. They're all fake. None, none of this is real. And it's like, at some point, like, we needed the adults to be in the room, and, and they just weren't there until it was too late. So now that we're kind of in this place that, um, you know, many Democrats who were sort of sounding the alarm bells four years ago, uh, w you know, were, were sort of saying that, that this movement, whether, you know, elements of it have white supremacists, have white supremacy in them, no doubt, but it is kind of a, a, a broader, just like a, the system is, is corrupt when, when there is corruption in the system, but it's not here. It's not what we're fighting against. Um, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll, I've, I felt like I've asked it before. I should probably ask it again. Like, where does the Republican Party go from here? Because the party of law and order has just seen, you know, their biggest constituency, their reliable voting block, uh, storm the Capitol, right? So what, what do they do now? What is going to be, yeah, what do, what do they do? I don't know. I'm sitting here and you keep looking at me and I'm just like, this is depressing. It really is. And uh, how many times are we going to have to ask, like, where do we go from here? Whether it's as Republicans for me, as conservatives for me, or as, as a country, it's goodness. It just feels like every time like, we can't get any lower, it's like, all right, we do. And then where do we go from here? Uh, I don't know. I, I have no answers. Uh, I, I'll say this is that I think some leaders were shocked rightly into doing the right thing, whether it's McConnell or Lindsey Graham or whomever, like the, what they saw on, on Wednesday uh, really shocked their consciences and in a good way. Uh, but then you have people like, like Cruz and, and Holly that, as we mentioned before, are as educated as anybody in this country, right? As, Dude, as, as smart Holly's as like, yeah. And both Cruz too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> continuing to lead this movement. So I think what you're going to have is you're going to have a number of principled Republicans, the Murkowskis, Romneys, Collins, I've mentioned them a million times, of they're going to continue to do what they have done for, for years. And then you're going to have some people that have had have been properly like chastened and are going to kind of join that. But we will say, even after seeing everything on Wednesday, 100-plus Republicans, congressional Republicans, continued to go forward with um, 
protesting this vote and, and objecting to it and continuing to feed these lies to their constituents. And that's the dangerous part. And I kind of alluded to this last week, but that there has to be a split here because while Trump certainly his his influence appears to be waning given all of the resignations in, in his cabinet, all of the rebukes from from parts of the Republican Party that had never really turned on him before. His his influence appears to be waning on the party. But as Donald Trump Jr. said in his you know pregame speech to the president's speech was that this isn't the Republican Party anymore. This is Donald Trump's party. And uh, I think there was a poll out last week whereas they polled you know, a number of conservatives, and they said, you know, where is your allegiance lie? Does it lie to the Republican Party or does it lie to Donald Trump? And 54% said it lied with Donald Trump. Uh, and that's a scary thing, that these are these are not, like we said, like I said last week, these are not what I would consider traditional conservatives. They are, they are in the cult of Trump at this point. And that's not going away. 70 million people voted for him, and these people are not all deplorable, racist people, right? And there are a number of them that are, but the vast majority, in my opinion, are not. And so dealing with that constituency is going to be really difficult because there are people that are going to try to use that constituency to, to further their own power, whether it's Donald Trump Jr. or Cruz or Holly looking at 2024. They know that I just need my 30% of the electorate, of the Republican electorate, to potentially you know, get to the highest, the highest point, the highest offices in the land. Uh, I'm not sure how you're going to be able to deal with, with that. Uh, I, I do think the this this recognition on hopefully a broader scale that we can no longer be a, a party to to these people it might have to be that we concede some losses in the short term to really try to stamp this element out and and rebuild <laughs> the party in a, into a true conservative movement what it had has been in the past and what I hope it will be in the future where uh, where we'll take some losses in these short-term elections, but we cannot allow these QAnon conspiracy theorists to continue to, you know, gain access to offices. We can't allow them to continue to, to peddle their lies. Um, this is one of the disappointing things where once we've lost the Senate, where as this this storm will blow over, and within you know, a few months, within the year, there will be a new push to. You know, the 2022 midterms are coming and Republicans are going to want to take back the House to try to take back the Senate because they're going to want to check the Biden-Harris administration, which I understand as a short-term goal is important for conservative movements. But at some point, it's like, what's what's the price here? Like, do we want to elect Republicans that are QAnon conspiracy theorists at the expense of Democrats who are going to vote for the Biden-Harris administration? If the answer is yes, then, I, then there, there is no coming back for the Republican Party in the short term. If the answer is no, and we would rather put forth um, true conservatives as opposed to you know, radical right-wingers, then we might suffer some losses because we might lose that fringe of the, that not even fringe, that segment of the Republican electorate. But in my opinion, that would be worth it to try to you know, build up the candidates, build up the reservoir of, of ideology that we used to have as a party. Yeah, I mean... I, I, I think that that is well, that's it's it is a, a problem in politics and problem in in business and in so many different areas. You know, short term uh, versus long term thinking, and of course, politicians like CEOs think about myself in the short term, right? Um, I personally like for the future of the Republican Party um, think about 
the losses in Georgia as potentially being a saving grace here, right? Because before where allegiance to Trump was really the only thing that was getting you like from, from 20 in 2018, uh, to, to 2020, like allegiance to Trump as a Republican was, uh, table stakes in order one to survive a primary. So, I mean, you know, we've, we've had our discussions about how primaries are, are really, um, at the root of a lot of our problems here, but then, <clears throat> but then even sort of just energizing that base, um, going into the election itself. I think losses um, in Georgia start to put some cracks into that invincible armor where, you know, Trump was heading in to the election in 2020 and everyone was saying, like, he's going to get blown out in a landslide. Come the end of that day, yes, he doesn't, or, you know, he doesn't win the presidency, but Republicans do better than you would think that they would have done. Now, of course, um, losing both Senate seats in Georgia um, is not anything, you know, most people would have fathomed at this point. But for like the sake of the party, now there's an opportunity for somebody to say, you know, the what we were running on was potentially not a winning formula. And because it's all about winning, like, are we going to continue to double down? Of course, it's not certainly not like I don't think this is the end of the road, but I think we'll start to see in 22 and 24, you're going to have different races being run. Like, are we going to continue to cater towards the Trump, you know, sort of the Trumpism that we're seeing? That's really not, I mean, <laughs> I don't think you could actually ask many Trump followers what are like the real tenets of conservatism um, and have them kind of list for you the the things that you would expect to hear out of a, a Republican. Um, but, but so, so, and I, I mean, that's where I think the hope is. And I mean, Democrats should know this, you know, from a historical perspective better than anybody, right? Like the Dixiecrat original democratic party was the party of the of sort of, uh, the Jim Crow, um, pro <laughs> the separatist and segregationist South, um, that is now the Democratic Party of today. So it is a very, very, as, as we've always talked about, these things change and they evolve. And so, I mean, I think for many of those times that I've asked you, where does the Republican Party go from here? It, it was a rhetorical question um, insofar as I was just hoping you'd say it's dead and, dead and buried and it goes nowhere. But I think, I, I think there is something to be said there. I think the challenge is really going to be yeah, if you start to get away from kind of the, the rhetoric that Trump used to, to really energize his base, who are those voters that you're going to start to pull away um, from the Democratic Party? And who do you kind of attract to like really expand the Republican tent? Because unfortunately, over the last 20 years, it has been a lot about strategizing and like, all right, we have this core group of people. How do we maximize their voices? Like we'll do some gerrymandering, which everyone does, but Republicans did better. We'll do, you know, our ground game and we'll figure out these areas where, you know, we can pack the courts, we can do these things, we can use our minority power, uh, potentially, you know, wield more influence that we might have otherwise had. We can win elections even if we don't win the popular vote, right? Like that. These are things that the Republican Party has done over the past twenty years. I think now, 
I will be interested to see where where the party starts to go and how they start to think about attracting new voters because a lot of Trumpism, I think, has to do with the fact that we are seeing policies geared towards underrepresented groups and that um, felt as, as, as if that was a direct threat towards um, kind of the white majority here. And so, but rather than think about ways that, all right, we can appeal to those underrepresented groups but still stay true to our core, it was those groups are kind of destroying our country. How do we take it back? And I think for Republicans to move forward, they're going to have to figure out a different strategy. Yeah, of course. And if you look at the election results, I, I think, and I've tried to say this consistently over these last few months, is that the tent should be as big as possible. And Republicans, I believe in Republican and conservative ideas at their core. And that's what we need to bring that message. If you look how we did in South Florida or West Texas, like our, our message, the, the fastest growing you know segment of this population, while again, it's not... Uh, a monolithic group is Hispanic Americans, right? And you know, our conservative beliefs appeal in a great deal to a lot of, you know, ex-Cubans or Venezuelans yeah. or yeah, religious conservatives out, out of <clears throat> Mexico or wherever. Uh, we have potential winning message. It's just the fissures here are deep and the, the, the Trump strains of the Republican Party are not going away anytime soon. I think in my ideal world, Republicans are lucky to have a President Biden as opposed to a President Warren or Sanders or Harris or any or a number of the other potential you know Democratic uh, presidents. But I think we should take this time to try to, like you say, get that message across and try to stamp out as much of this Trumpism as possible. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I just think that one those voices are are too loud right now. I don't think. The president is going away after January 20th. I don't think his son is going away. I don't think his supporters are going away. So I think there will be a fight for the Republican Party. And any uniting that's going to come is going to come at the demonization of Biden, Harris, Warren, Sanders. And yeah. it'll be, let, let's win these seats. Great. But we, we haven't solved the long-term issues. You know, you, you every once in a while you hear that they're going to have like a post-mortem, you know, after after Romney lost, you know, his election in 2012, there was this post-mortem. But it, unfortunately, they never last because it's just so in the moment, so win, 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 as opposed to you know what do we really believe and how do we how do we grow this this movement, these ideas for the long term? Yeah, and I mean I guess to wrap this segment, when you cry fraud, rather than trying to dissect like you know what what where did we go wrong here? There's you don't you can't learn anything from that. But maybe when we uh, when we wrap this, we'll we'll try and end on a little bit of a high note here. Well, I wanted to end on a high note here, but uh, but Brennan is still sort of sulking in, in the in the demise of what's left of the I am sulking. I am sulking. I'll, so, I'll totally own that. Ricky so. was like, "We've been depressing enough," and I I agree. But it's not our it's not our fault. We don't want to be depressing. We're not. If you know us, we're not depressing people in general. I don't think. But this is we got to confront. We got to deal with the uh, the entirety of the news. So, and I wanted to look at the fallout from 
from what's happened from what happened last Wednesday. And there's a couple of things. There's one the political fallout and there's one the big tech fallout. And so the political fallout is that many people have been encouraging Vice President Pence and I believe tomorrow the House is going to formally ask Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. Um, 25th Amendment, I'm sure it's been all over the news, so most people know what it is. It was passed in um, in Congress in 1965, ratified by the states in 1967, and it says that when the president is uh, incapacitated or unable to fulfill uh, his or her duties, his constitutional duties, then if the vice president and a majority of the cabinet believes that the president can no longer fulfill those duties, they can take the power away from the president and the vice president would be the acting president. And while uh, that's essentially what's happened in the last few days, people are treating Vice President Pence as the president because no no one's even talking, they're not even talking anymore, Trump and Pence, uh, because Pence somehow betrayed Trump by you know, not doing something that he was constitutionally not allowed to do, whatever. Uh, so... Pence's, I don't think, is going to invoke the 25th Amendment, but it's it's never been invoked before, so it's historic that it's even going to have been asked of the vice president. So that's not going to happen. Trump is not going to resign, despite calls from not only Democrats, but several Republicans by the Wall Street Journal editorial yesterday. Uh, yeah, I'm very surprised about people that. People want to, I mean, again, you, have, you can't stand with this if you're a true conservative, and so he's not going to, they're not going to invoke the 25th Amendment. He's not going to resign. The other option is impeachment which you know Pelosi has the votes it looks like that might hit the floor the house floor later this week and if it doesn't get passed it goes to the senate it would be again historic for a number of reasons it would be the first president to have ever been impeached twice and the first president to have ever been impeached out of, while he's out of office because you know Biden and Harris are inaugurated in 9 days from today so uh, obviously like they're as people know from last year's impeachment, there is a full trial in the Senate that usually lasts several weeks or a month plus. And generally speaking, the president has an opportunity to present a defense and the, the Democrats have the chance to make their case. And I actually think that it's, it's far more plausible that he would actually get impeached in the Senate this time around. One, because I think a number of moderate Republican senators have totally abandoned him. And two, I think there are some political hopefuls that if, so I guess the question is, why do you impeach him after he leaves? The big thing is, one, he can never run for federal office again. Two, he doesn't get his pension, which he doesn't need, he hasn't taken a salary. And three, he doesn't get like the travel money in detail that, that he would have had he been just a, a president whose term had expired. I'm sure he's worried about not getting that security detail. He might be worried about that. Uh, but the big thing is that he can't run for federal office, which I think a lot of people are concerned about. And it holds him accountable for his actions on the 6th and before does that. set a precedent. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm generally speaking in favor of, of holding people responsible for their actions. So I'm not against that. Um, it would be fascinating. It would also be brutally difficult for Biden, his first you know 100 days when he's trying to get all these things through Congress. Congress is tied up in an impeachment with his, with his predecessor, right? So in some sense, I think Democrats are harming themselves more than they should. But I mean, I do think that impeachment is going to get out of the House this week. It's going to go to the Senate. And at this point, if like they can bring it forward if they want. They, they have the votes to at least bring it forward and, and debate it. And uh, that's, that, that is going to be fascinating. Yeah, I don't necessarily have a ton to add to this discussion. I think the idea of him not running again in 2024 probably uh, 
appeals to guys like Cruz. Absolutely. Um, so you could see him flip on this clearly because he has no principles or morals. Uh, I, I, potentially editorializing a bit too much. But I, I mean, the, and I think the other, potentially the other funny tweet that I saw this week um, was that if we can confirm a Supreme Court justice in eight days, we could probably pull off an impeachment in nine. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if it is important to set that precedent, which I, I, I would potentially agree that that it is, that this is something that we should universally condemn um, and it would be great just as sort of a show of uh, a universal condemnation um, between both the House and the Senate to, to, to do something like this. Um, but, but I think your other point is well taken, too, that it would be a huge detraction and a distraction. And I think about, um, you know, some of the other societies or areas in which they're sort of historical events that there have been massive um, divisions in groups of people and one side is won and one side is lost and you can kind of take it two ways two ways right the winner uh, spends the next you know the the next five years four years whatever beating it down the throats of the losers and saying you guys lost take it you know that's 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 it and that's all and I'm, I'm not working with you we beat you and that's it. Or you can do the path of sort of uh, reconciliation, and you, like you think about people um, like Nelson Mandela in, in in apartheid South Africa, and I, I don't mean to trivialize that or really to to equate them. equate them, equate them certainly, but but in in just sort of like Germany in the Marshall Plan, right? Like there are um, if you want to get the seventy million um, Trump supporters back into like the mainstream. I mean, you're maybe you're never going to get all 70 million, but you don't need 70 million. Maybe you need like 30 and and that's enough. Um, is is a second impeachment the way to do that? Yeah, Probably it's a, it's not. A, it's a fair, a really fair debate. And I think your point about South Africa post-apartheid is, is totally well taken. You even look at uh, Lincoln after the Civil War was very much on the side of, yeah. you know, with... Uh, with malice towards non-charity for all, or is that, yeah. I'm butchering that quote, but something like that, or one Ford pardoned Nixon. And I, I think there's a lot of benefit to let, let's move forward with healing and unity, which is Biden's message. It has been his message for two years. I, and I think there's a lot of that where there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. And you can, you can also point to like reconstruction being a total disaster and, and, and maybe that's not the way forward, but, but certainly it's something that you, that you need to think about deliberately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other part, of course, is like people do need to be held responsible for their actions, right. and we should go after all of those protesters that that stormed the house. They've been. I love all these headlines coming across: arrested in Arkansas, arrested in Arizona, arrested in Florida. Like that, we're rounding up and putting prosecuting these criminals. Love it, right? You know, some of these elected officials are guilty in a lot of the same ways. As, as these if individuals, more. if not more than these individual citizens. So in that sense, like, I don't love that sense of, we've talked about this before about the American justice system, where we're going after all of these individuals who are normal, kind of no, quote unquote normal everyday people that don't have a lot of money or power, but we're just going to let kind of the elected officials slide on some of this stuff. That bothers me in setting precedent where a sitting president is able to incite an armed insurrection against the Capitol and just being like, well, we're going to move on from that. That doesn't sit well with me either. So I don't know. I can see 
both ways. I, I think the Democrats are moving with forward with their anger, which I respect. I, I wish there was maybe a little more um, thought and maybe let, let things cool down and, and really consider. I don't have the right answer to it. I, I see the, the, the benefits on both sides. Right. but And time is running out, I guess. Time is running out, out, right, for sure. Too. Yeah. All right, and then the other fallout from Wednesday has, has been across big tech, which uh, first Twitter, uh, then Facebook – permanently banned President Trump from posting on their sites. Uh, and then the number of other websites, Spotify, uh, Pinterest, also. Pinterest is a good one. Ridiculous, <laughs> but they did. Uh, and so he can't post on their sites anymore. Uh, Parler, which is uh, the conservative alternative to Twitter, was uh, banned on a number of sites. And then Amazon, which was the hosting platform for Parler, said they're no longer going to host it. And so what this has become my, I guess my first reaction was that, like, President Trump's Twitter was suspended originally and then permanently disabled. I, my first reaction was kind of, like, good. You know, like, he hasn't been using this platform as a force for good. I, I, I think we only have nine days left. Everyone's just trying to get through these nine days as safely as possible. Uh, but upon further reflection, I, I do think this is a dangerous precedent to set. And the... The rhetoric on the right increasingly has now like, gotten away from taking responsibility for these events on June 6th and now pointing to big tech and the left and saying, look, they are trying to censor us. We told you this was coming. This is what we're fighting against. And now they're censoring us even more. And so I think, one, you've allowed the right to escape some responsibility and continue to point the finger at the left and saying, like, again, this is what we were telling you was going to happen. They're doing it. And I heard even a speech by Trump Jr., today saying that we are living 1984 like where when you have unpopular beliefs you're no longer able to say them and i will say that if people regular people are no longer able to express their beliefs on uh, any of these big tech websites that this is just going to frustrate them more and when again you continue to silence people's voices what does that lead to that leads them to have fewer and fewer options which will is going to lead to increased violence so i i in, in more reflection of it, I guess I should back up again, but uh, this is going to be mostly me talking this episode, apparently. I have a lot of thoughts. You don't want to talk this segment anyway. Whatever. Uh, that, that There's a lot of cry on the right, like First Amendment rights are being violated. They are not being violated. First Amendment protects individuals from government censorship and doesn't allow the government to censor people's free speech. That's not what's happening here because... It also the, doesn't protect the incitement of violence. Uh, fair, fair, right. So it's not... in The Supreme Court has decided through numerous rulings that you don't get to say whatever it is you want. Like, there are certain things that are actually restricted uh, for the, the safety and well-being of us as a society. Uh, but people claiming that big tech is violating people's First Amendment rights is not true. Uh, with that said when these big tech become almost allies of the government or in some cases <laughs> bigger than government themselves because they're so uh, huge and, and, and worldwide and they're the ones censoring people while you don't while you're not protected by the first amendment it's, it's it sets a dangerous precedent for allowing what kind of speech you you allow people to see and hear and while i kind of respect something like twitter's argument that President Trump is using their platform, you know, dangerously. Well, okay, but we have, we allow, you know, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad the, uh, of Iran or Vladimir Putin of Russia or Xi Jinping of China to use that platform. And uh, they interviewed the, the Russian dissident, Alexei Navalev, Nav Navalny, Nav Navalny. Uh, and he was saying, 
I mean, come on. He's like, I'm no fan of President Trump, but I've had death threats used, made against me on this platform for years. I was poisoned and tried to be killed, and no one took anyone, and no one disabled anybody's Twitter accounts in Russia, you know? Yeah. And I, I think this is a little bit dangerous, a lot of it dangerous, and it, it's not something... I think the anger from the left pointed towards Trump and, and the right and the rhetoric that's been said is legitimate, but choosing to censor his voice and voices like him is is dangerous. Yeah, I guess I should say uh, for full disclosure that I work for one of these big tech companies. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know that, that you've said anything that is um, really uh, problematic insofar as I think people should be able to agree that like you don't want individuals at these big tech companies making the call as to whether or not we should allow such and such person on the platform whether it is a Donald Trump or you know someone in Iran or you know someone in China it is always dangerous for some individual person to be choosing what is and is not dangerous and I think part of the problem, of course, is that we're really not able to hold people accountable for the stuff that they say on these platforms. Um, but, you know, that that is, again, something that we typically rely on the, the federal government to do. I think one of the things that bears pointing out is that, it, that you know, for years, uh, Twitter, Facebook... Um, and the like have, have sort of been reluctant, certainly on, on free speech grounds and being like, you know, we're just here and all these people exist anyways. Like we're not, we're not creating them. They're here and they're posting on our platforms. Um, but now that, that Democrats control the, uh, the house, the Senate and the presidency, and they have been the loudest figure saying you need to do something about what, what fake news like real falsities are being spread on your platform but again it goes back to what i think is still the problem is not the fact that these things that don't make any sense are actually getting a ton of traction on these platforms and i mean you can talk about like the algorithms and how they spread and whatnot but it, it is more so that people are so they are looking for this information and as soon as they see it they you know, they buy it hook, line, and sinker, and why is that? Like, we need to deal with that as a society far more than we need to deal with who Facebook allows on the platform or not. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it's really a fundamental issue in, in terms of, like, how we move forward here is how do we get people to stop believing actual fake news as opposed to the quote-unquote fake news, which is the actual real media. You know, like, <laughs> it's just so messed up how that that's all happened. Um, and it's the idea of... How, how do we engage responsibly with the actual fake news that, that's out there? And you allow people to express their opinions, which they have every right to do and we should encourage them to do. But do, do you actively push back on these things that are false? And, but in which case, people tend to go into their shells and, and, and surround themselves with their echo chambers and the things that make them feel safe and comfortable uh, which is just like a evolutionary thing that people do when they feel attacked, or do we just let them proliferate amongst themselves on the right wing fringe, but now become so entrenched that they are taken as actual news? I mean, that's something where we look at like where do we go forward from here? That's something we're gonna have to have a reckoning with 
as a country where how do we deal with this proliferation of, of fake news that, that people believe? And yeah, long term, hopefully, you would hope our education systems would do a better job across the country educating people on this. But <laughs> that's that's a very long term solution. And also, I, that clearly hasn't worked. I mean, there are a number of we know of intelligent people that continue to get sucked into these these false narratives. So that that's really the like when you say where are the underlying issues. Yeah, it's not necessarily Amazon refusing to host Parler. It's how do we how do we convince the the majority of our, our citizenship to believe to trust in our institutions again? Yeah, and I mean part of it. I think, unfortunately, because education is such a long-term play, has to come from, you know, some of these people who have benefited from sort of propagating and, and, and spreading this misinformation to their benefit to come out and say, look, I did this because I knew it would work. And, and unfortunately, we don't expect that to happen, yeah. but for I think one of the dangerous things about the one, I really say one as in one potentially small but potentially large, is that there, throughout the Trump administration, you never heard Donald Trump say that I was wrong about anything, right? Like, even like the most trivial of things that someone would be like, oh, you said this, but like, here's the thing, you're definitely not right. And he's like, no, 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 I don't know where you got that fake news from. But, like, I am right. And that, like, inability to be wrong is something that we have sort of entrenched in us. But it is problematic when it's at sort of that, like, that that highest level, this idea of infallibility. Um, and I think I think part of the solution is going to be for, for people in positions of power to call out things that are wrong when it is not politically expedient. Unfortunately, for the last 20 years, like it has been very hard to come by that. This is the Star Spangled Sweet Banner. Martin. Sweet Queen Coretta. Sweet Brother Malcolm. Sweet Queen Betty. Sweet Mother Mary. Sweet Father Joseph. Sweet Jesus. So, you know, this has been, I think, our longest episode to date. and There's a lot to talk about. There was a lot to talk about. And it's and hard to say that we even hit um, uh, even half of, of all of the things that we probably wanted to say here. But um, I did want to conclude, uh, since you wouldn't let me do that like 30 minutes ago when I tried to, on a happy note, or at least just to say that I think it is important, even in some, like, you know, you could say the darkest of times, um, to remember that the bad news isn't the only news, and there are just so many things going on, and, and we have victories to celebrate, um, as well as, you know, of course, these uh, these tragedies, for lack of a better word, to reflect on and to, and to understand. Yeah. And to go back to the original accounting of the six that I gave, where you can point, and I did, I sent you a message in the middle of the day of the, the rioters storming, literally storming the Capitol and scaling the walls, and I said to you, this is America. And it is, and, and that's true. 
but also I was up at two thirty in the morning listening to Reverend Warnock give his his accepting his uh, acceptance his yeah. acceptance speech of, of like I said earlier becoming the first um, black democratically elected senator in the South and. I got goosebumps thinking about that too. And that too is America. And that is, that's the, the contrast that we have to live with. And as depressing as engaging with so much stuff that has happened lately is, there's also a lot of, of hope where a kid, a black kid growing up in the housing projects of Georgia is able to rise to become the the senator from Georgia, it's it's really cool, and I yeah, I don't want that to get lost. Yeah, it was it was one of those things where you know when you said this is America, I think something that that had sort of been trending is there was you know two camps. This is not us. This is not who we are. This doesn't represent who we are. And other people saying this is exactly who we are. This is what we've been saying we are. Um, and and in a weird way. I think both of those things are are true, and you can see the promise of America in certain things, and then and you can see the the areas that we, as a country, obviously still have um, a lot to a lot of growing to do and a lot of learning to do. Um, I think I want to wrap this segment just with that, uh, with the one line from Raphael Warnock's um, acceptance speech. So he said, "The other day." Because this is America, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. The improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here.
Shredder for the 